It's Wednesday, July 8th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The hunt is on for vaccine test subjects, and coronavirus researchers are having to compete to recruit tens of thousands of healthy people for phase three trials. While drug makers usually recruit patients through advertising on social media or at doctor's offices, they are now looking at pharmacies, enlisting churches in the search, and even requesting that their own employees and families ask around. Jared Hopkins, pharma reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the search for vaccine trial participants. Next, a world leader in pandemic preparedness at the John Hopkins Center for Health Security has said that we might have to deal with wearing masks for several years as it will take time for a vaccine to hit the masses. He also suggests that there will be no summertime lull in cases, leading to another big wave in the fall. Claire Riley, host of Hacking the Apocalypse and senior editor at CNET, joins us for this and how technology is being leveraged to help fight against COVID-19. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Trials during normal times can take years to finish or take months and vaccines take, you know, on average, like more than a decade to work, but we don't have that sort of time. So what's going on here is some of the different sort of strategies are researchers and drug companies and some of the firms that recruit patients are taking some unusual steps. Joining us now is Jared Hopkins, pharma reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Jared. Thanks for having me. We've been talking a lot about vaccines for the coronavirus and the development, which is moving at a record pace. I think we have three different vaccine candidates that will be starting their phase three trials later on this month and in the coming months over the summer. But one of the interesting things that has come up on this is that you also need a ton of people to participate in these clinical trials. And it's kind of creating this competition for candidates to sign up for those trials there. And it's pushing some of the researchers to try new methods to recruit people. Jared, tell us a little bit about this. So vaccine trial development is going so quickly for COVID-19 vaccines. There's more than a dozen that are in testing of humans so far in early stages, which means that they are test mostly for safety and whether or not they can go forward. And so once the first phase of safety trials in maybe a few dozen patients are complete, they move on to these larger phase trials that for COVID are calling for tens of thousands of patients, 30,000 patients per trial for several upcoming trials. And these are crucial Because before any vaccines can be massively distributed to millions or billions of people in the U.S. or around the world, they have to prove that they work in these trials, which are controlled. And typically, some patients get the vaccine, and then some patients get a placebo. And then you see whether or not the vaccine works at protecting people from getting COVID-19 infections. The federal government is planning to fund three 30,000-person trials this summer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, and Johnson & Johnson. And then Pfizer is planning to start their own 30,000-person trials. So we need 120,000 healthy people or, you know, people that haven't got it yet to participate in these trials. And they're doing all sorts of new things to recruit them. They're also looking at algorithms to find out where the next hotspot might be so that they can go to those places and recruit those people. 
And it's unprecedented, really, in the idea of this many healthy volunteers this quickly. And that's one reason why these trials are so large. I mean, they sound like they're big numbers, and and they are. So normally, drug makers will recruit patients to test trials through advertising, you know, print or radio, social media, or very commonly, just when you go visit your doctor in the office, if there's some sort of medical condition you have, or you're going to get a flu vaccine, they might ask you to enroll in a trial then. But trials during normal times can take years to finish or take months. And vaccines take, you know, on average, like more than a decade to work. But we don't have that sort of time. So what's going on here is some of the different sort of strategies are researchers and drug companies and some of the firms that recruit patients are taking some unusual steps. And that includes mining patients' data or basically testing results at pharmacies and testing locations. Some folks are going out into the communities and enlisting churches and other community organizations. And then some testing sites, which are hospitals and clinics, are turning to employees of their own hospitals and asking them to ask friends and family to come in here to enroll in these trials. So lots of different sort of strategies that are going on. And part of it is that they want to do this effort as quickly as possible to get these patients into these trials. And one of the interesting things that I didn't really and still don't really know exactly how it works was, you know, once you get the vaccine, they send these people to go back out in the community and kind of live their normal lives to see if they would catch it, to see, you know, if they do catch it, how the vaccine responds there. And that's why I said that, you know, they're using algorithms when things targeting states such as Florida, Arizona, Texas, where there are hot spots right now because they have to go back and be in the real world and to see if these vaccines work in the real world. Some companies and some researchers, they are running some artificial intelligence and algorithms trying to figure out where potential areas will be, because that's essentially what you want to see is is how it works in the real time. And by all the indications, by all the experts, is that we will be dealing with this virus for the foreseeable future. But that means looking two months down the road or three months down the road sometimes, because you do have to sort of put test subjects who don't know necessarily if they are vaccinated with a placebo or with an actual vaccine to see how it works. They're also looking to fill all the categories. They're looking for elderly people, minorities, participants that are in the higher risk pools of infection, because they need to make sure that this vaccine could potentially work across the board. What a lot of public health officials and others have said are very important issues here is that testing and making sure vaccines are effective to the high risk populations, which so far do include the elderly folks over 65, ethnic minorities, as well as individuals maybe with underlying health conditions too. And some of these take additional efforts to recruit. Elderly are particularly of concern because they are shown in high numbers so far to uh, contract the disease, but also they have weaker immune systems. So as you get older, your immune system becomes weaker, which means that vaccines sometimes need to be added with little boosters, I guess, as they call them. Their very scientific term is adjuvant, but you add something to a vaccine and you make it a little bit more, hopefully, potent that can help the immune system. And minorities are also a group that public health officials and researchers and companies are looking to enroll. And they involve additional steps to do this. So not only do you want to find the 30,000 people, but you want to make sure that it's reflective of the population that necessarily needs any of that high risk of COVID-19 infections. Jared Hopkins, 
pharma reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure, thank you. Is there a chance that we could be caught off guard by some sort of horrible mutant bat influenza or something like that? Yes, and we probably will be. I mean, that's that's the nature of these things. Joining us now is Claire Riley, host of Hacking the Apocalypse and senior editor at CNET. Thanks for joining us, Claire. Thank you for having me. Wanted to talk about some of the work that you've been doing. You're actually hosting a series on CNET called Hacking the Apocalypse about how tech that could save us from disastrous scenarios, things like that. And you've actually been working on this for some time now before the coronavirus pandemic hit. And I think you mentioned it in one of the video pieces, like, of course, we're going to be talking about a pandemic when we're talking about big disasters. And it just so happened that everything you were working on for at least that specific episode kind of came to be. You spoke to Eric Toner. He's a senior scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, and he's a world leader in pandemic preparedness. It was so interesting. And my ears perked up right when I heard it, too. You asked him specifically is there a chance that we could be caught off guard by some sort of horrible mutant bat influenza? And right away he answered yes, and we probably will be. Tell us a little bit about your conversation with Eric Toner and what his thoughts are about the current pandemic we're going through right now. That was a completely surreal clip to watch back again and again as we were editing. You're right, we spoke to Eric last year. And as we were setting out this series, we really thought, what are the scariest things from Hollywood movies that terrify us? So things like mega tsunamis, nuclear winter, and pandemic, of course, was up there. And so we went and spoke to Johns Hopkins. They are the leaders when it comes to these kinds of emergency threats. Eric Toner himself, he does things like bioterrorism. He was telling me he works through simulations on what would happen if we had an airborne pathogen that was intentionally released by someone. So he's really across this. But obviously, we were speaking all in kind of speculative ways about this last year. And then obviously, the pandemic hit this year and the world has been completely turned upside down. But what has been so interesting is this is what Eric does. This is his life. He goes through step by step and thinks about what would happen if X kind of virus came? What would happen if it was bacterial? How would our hospitals respond if XYZ happened? So he simulates these things. He works through these things. And then obviously it happened in real life. And he's kind of in this position where he's prepared for this his whole life. But it plays out in real time in a very different way because suddenly you have concerns that the public bring in. You have concerns about mask wearing. You have concerns about how will people work in a pandemic. So it was really interesting speaking to him last year. And then we've caught up a number of times since the pandemic has hit to kind of touch base and find out what's actually happening and how is this playing out and how can we end this? And that leads me to the top line of one of your latest articles about this. And this was getting a lot of traction all over the place. In the eyes of a pandemic expert, he says, we'll be living with masks for years. And that's been a big point of contention right now, wearing face masks. A lot of people don't want to do it. A lot of people are doing it and getting mad at people who don't. But that's one of the things he said. It's going to take us a while to still get a vaccine and all these effective treatments. Even if a vaccine comes by the end of the year before it's mass produced and available to everybody, it's still going to take some time after that. And he said that, you know, we're going to have to have this degree of social distancing and living with masks for several years. Tell us about how Eric Toner felt about that. It was really interesting. Obviously, you can hear from my accent that I'm not from the States. I moved here in January 
not the best timing. But it's been interesting how different countries have tackled this. And back in Australia, obviously a much smaller population, places like New Zealand, once again, a smaller population, but they've really jumped on the things that the World Health Organization and that public health experts recommend to tackle something like this. And those are things like testing, making sure you're seeing where the virus is and where it's popping up, and then preventative measures. And we heard a lot about washing our hands in the early days of this pandemic, but masks are a really simple tool. There's a lot of scientific evidence that points to masks protecting you from infecting other people just by stopping the droplets that come out of your mouth when you talk, when you yell, when you sing. And that's particularly important with this kind of disease. When I spoke to him, I was kind of shocked by that as well. I'm here and I'm missing my family. I want them to be able to come over and visit. I don't want to be in lockdown. No one does. But he kind of said, we need to get used to this if we're not going to get the whole situation under control. And we can't get it under control unless we have a vaccine or a treatment. And that's a bit of time coming. But the really basic thing is masks. And if we all wore masks, the rate of infection would drop. We'd be able to get this much more under control. So I think it's not that we will be wearing full personal protective equipment for the next five years, walking around in some sort of dystopian science fiction film. But I think what might happen over the next six months, a year, is that we get more used to maybe wearing a mask at a supermarket or maybe when we're meeting up with a large group of people, we're not sure, they're not our close friends, we know they've been kind of staying safe. So maybe we'd wear a mask in that situation. Another interesting thing that he said too was that there will be no summertime lull. A lot of people were thinking uh, summertime comes, it's going to be hot outside, people are going to get out, there might be a break in cases there. But As economies here in the United States started opening up just in the past month or so, uh, we're seeing cases go right back up. And it seems like there won't be a lull. It's going to carry us straight into the fall where uh, people originally kind of thought that second wave was going to hit. So, uh, I mean, this kind of all wraps itself together. This is why we need to continue the social distancing, being careful and wearing the mask. This is how he sees it playing out. So there's actually two things involved here. One is the idea of a summertime lull. A lot of people often reference this pandemic and they look back at the great influenza pandemic of 1918 everyone returning from war and about 50 to 100 million people around the world died, which was catastrophic. Now, influenza, the virus behind that pandemic, is a seasonal virus. And Eric was talking to me and saying, you know, you do see with this kind of virus, it spikes up in wintertime and it's less prevalent in summer. So you might think of that in flu season. You go and get your flu shot as you're heading into winter in the States here. But that's one side of it. COVID-19, the disease, and this particular novel coronavirus isn't really seasonal in the same way that traditional influenza is. But also, as you pointed out, the social aspects. We aren't seeing a summertime lull because people, understandably, were in real dire economic straits. People were agitated from having to stay indoors. They were fed up. And so we started to reopen some places far, far too quickly. There's an idea that if you really just lock down and then get it under control, you can ease back that dimmer switch of opening things back up again and it can be safer to do so. But it seems that a lot of states reopened too quickly and 
we started to see this spike again. So obviously Memorial Day weekend hit. Um, everyone was keen to see the sunshine. They wanted to get out and see their friends. And we started to reopen businesses. And with that, a lot of areas where there was no mandated face mask use, people were getting out and breathing on each other. And that's what led to that kind of spike. I certainly spent the 4th of July holiday sort of thinking, oh, we're going to see a spike in a couple of weeks, about a month's time. And Eric said, look, even if we lock down today and everyone just started completely behaving, we're still going to see a spike in a month's time because it takes a while for these symptoms to manifest and present themselves, takes a while for those people to get sick enough to go into hospital. And so it's kind of this delayed effect. So you're right, we're not going to see a lull if we continue at the rate we do. And also this particular virus and this disease doesn't really work like that. It's not all bad news. There is some good news. Hospitals are getting better and managing the symptoms and getting ahead of this before it gets really bad in a lot of patients, before they have to go on ventilators, things like that. And then we're leveraging technology. This is kind of where it all started, the hacking the apocalypse feature. We're leveraging technology to help get ahead of this also. I think it was the University of Tennessee is using a supercomputer to help find effective treatments for COVID-19. This supercomputer, literally only about a week or two, just got pipped for the title of fastest supercomputer in the world. But it's this incredibly impressive machine that basically just runs numbers. So if you imagine the coronavirus, it's like a ball with a lot of spikes on it. And those spikes bind to our cells and create little openings where the virus injects itself in, it multiplies, you get sicker and sicker. What they were looking at is instead of those spikes kind of spiking our cells, could we find a way for a drug to attach itself to that spike and kind of neutralize the virus? So rather than testing drugs on people and saying, all right, how do you respond to this particular tablet over that pill? What they did was they simulated the virus on the Summit supercomputer and then they ran a bunch of drugs. So they kind of showed what the drug molecule would look like. They did that in a simulation and they kind of just did this a really fast thunderdome of drugs going against virus. Does this one work? No, it doesn't seem to work. All right, we'll try the next one. And they found at least 77, and the number is still growing, they found a bunch of drug compounds that could work. So rather than testing hundreds of drugs and hoping that they work in human trials, which obviously takes time to get approved, it takes time for the humans to respond to the drug, they could find the best candidates and they could work out, okay, which ones are the most likely to succeed in a trial? And they kind of did all that hard work through the supercomputer so that they can then take those drugs and see if they'll work in actual clinical trials, which is super exciting. And it's really kind of the first time we've seen this work. I mean, we did not have the benefit of supercomputers in 1918 when we were fighting the influenza pandemic. So it's right. really cutting edge technology. A lot of this work, as we mentioned before, is being done on part of this series that you worked on, Hacking the Apocalypse. Tell us a little bit more about that. It's a documentary series from CNET, and we basically look at really terrifying scenarios, the things you would see in a sci-fi movie, and then say, okay, how can technology get us out of this? So we speak to experts in their field who can tell us about, okay, nuclear winter, just how terrifying is it when a nuke goes off and what would happen if we entered all-out nuclear war? And then we go out to the middle of Kansas to one of the most deluxe luxury bunkers. I think I've, well, I haven't been inside a lot of nuclear doomsday <laughs> bunkers, but this one was 
was completely deluxe. And then finally, we're finding out about the really exciting technology that's going to one day take us into space and where we could live when we eventually get to Mars. It's great that it's kind of out now. It's on CNET and on CNET's YouTube channel. And yeah, it was really fun. And it's kind of nice to see that scientists and technologists are actually working on solutions that can save us from things that are pretty scary. Claire Riley, host of Hacking the Apocalypse and senior editor at CNET. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.